This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And what a day I had. I can't wait to tell you about it. Uh, I have to say I saw three. Let me get this right. Three. I think it was only three. Yeah, it could have been uh, three for sure. Yeah, three members of Congress, one senator and two congressmen today. I talked with another one uh, via text, which is really, really cool. And I don't want to get too over the top, but I do think a new day is dawning. And I believe that the grassroots, the conservatives, the citizens of this country are demanding accountability and we're being heard. Now, I don't, it, it may not be sustained. Uh, we, we will clearly run into some uh, ups and downs, ins and outs, but it's a really good sign. It's a really good sign. Um, you know, I did a lengthy interview. It actually got, uh, it got uh, uh, dinged. Uh, uh, it got uh, broken up at the end, so I've got to clean it up. And uh, Ryan, our associate producer, is so good at that. We're trying to figure it out. Uh, Thomas Baker, a retired FBI agent, wrote a book on the FBI being broken, uh, Post-Hill Press, Bombardier, uh, Bombardier Books, uh, Post-Hill Press published it, and a uh, really good book. I've read most of it already, and I had this great interview, which is, in the, is recorded. It's in the can, uh, but I got to clean it up because the ending uh, ended abruptly, so we'll probably air that tomorrow. Uh, but my point is, this is a uh, savvy, experienced uh, professional uh, 33 years on the force. I didn't ask him how old he is, but I got to figure he's somewhere in his 60s, maybe even 70. He's uh, been out for a while. And um, he's writing about the FBI and he's and he's uh, he's he's a company man, meaning he's proud of his service. He believes in the uh, service to the country. He believes in what's going on, but he knows there's a problem, a major problem. And therefore, he uh, is talking about it. And it's it feels to me like more and more people are willing to tell the truth about what's going on. So it's very exciting. Look forward to that. Thomas Baker, the author. All right. Um, what you need to know today, what you need to know today is that um, there, it's a new day. It's a new day in uh, the Capitol, in the U.S. Congress. Now, it's also happening across the country. I'm, I'm seeing, I'm getting reports from the folks that are in uh, places like Idaho, got a state senator friend and she's so excited about the the uh, willingness of the republican majorities the conservative the majorities republican majorities to act conservatively uh in that case up there in idaho on health freedom which is what they're really concerned about but i just want to tell you up in washington dc at the u.s capitol in the u.s house they had the vote on the rules committee excuse me the rules of the house so the rules of the house of the u.s house are what the uh, majority will be governed by and what they will pay attention to uh, in their um, maintenance of the U.S. House. And so what you have in the U.S. House now is the Republican rules that have been Pelosi uh, for the years, and now the Republicans put theirs in. They've done things like a single subject rule, that you won't have these omnibus bills that cover 20 topics. You'll have a single subject. This bill... It may cover a bunch of ground, but it's all about education. This bill is all about uh, defense, as opposed to an omnibus bill that's about 20 different subjects. That's a huge deal. Regular order, meaning that there's the ability to put amendments on bills. And here's the thing. We saw at a meeting I was at, we saw Congressman Bishop, Dan Bishop, 
Congressman Chip Roy, they both came and addressed us. And then after them, we had Senator Ted Cruz. And maybe Ted Cruz is better to frame what we heard from the two congressmen, because Ted Cruz is no stranger to the fights uh, of of the kind of um, public variety, meaning you're going to have to be willing to uh, get the slings and arrows of the media, as well as your own Republican colleagues, as well as sometimes the base or the grassroots or maybe more likely the establishment. But Ted Cruz has had filibusters he's done. He's refused to vote to raise the uh, debt ceiling. He's been fearless. And and sometimes it seems like he actually is uh, uh, um, foolhardy. I don't think he is, but people will say he tends to pick a fight. The old uh, joke that uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly used to say is about Irishman. Irishman's walking down the street and he sees a fight break out and he goes over and he pokes one of the guys, uh, taps one of the guys on the shoulder and says, is uh, this a public fight or can anyone jump in? And uh, she loved to say that about the willingness of some to fight. Uh, uh, and in this case, Ted Cruz loves to fight, right? And if you love Ted Cruz, you love to see it. And I, I think Ted Cruz has been fearless and great in many ways. But what he said when Senator Ted Cruz came to this event earlier today, what he said was, you have to see what happened in the House and understand how the people the 20 that started out and then the final five, you know, the five or six that were holding out. He said not only were they fearless, but he said they knew when to take yes for an answer. Now, I Joe, I joked with someone afterwards. Ted Cruz is a guy that I think the Wall Street Journal's editorial page or uh, others would say, does he really know when to take yes? Because sometimes he'll go to the mat. It doesn't matter what's going on. But he does. I mean, he's very, very smart. And more importantly, he was describing how Chip Roy, the congressman from Texas, Dan Bishop, the congressman, I think he's from North Carolina, how they made progress for the future by getting changes to the rules, by getting changes to how the U.S. House will be governed. And his argument, this is Ted Cruz's argument, was, okay, you saw what it was like. Now you can do it again. Now you can keep fighting. And what you need to know is, I think that sort of fighting spirit I think it's contagious right now. And what I mean by that is after the November election, when Republicans and, and conservatives and the grassroots thought we were going to win, 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 and they didn't win, you know, they didn't win as many seats. I think people were just sort of disgusted and they were sick of it. And you've seen sort of rapidly over about two months that the, 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 uh, the, the people in the base, the Republican grassroots has just turned vociferously on people like Mitch McConnell and even Kevin McCarthy. They're just sick of it. And they're willing to say they're sick of it. And when these 20 stood up and said, we're not going to uh, rubber stamp this pick without some real action, some real changes. I think people were like, this is great. Now, the powers that be didn't like it. The powers that be don't like change. They don't like uncertainty. My son is uh, 16 years old. He's learning to drive. He made, a, he made a great statement about learning to drive. Learning to drive a car is, is one of the key things is to drive in such a way that it's predictable, meaning you can signal one way and you drive a certain speed and you understand. That way people around you can, can sense what you're doing. It's a great way to think of it, right? Being predictable makes it easier for people to deal with being around you. Well, being unpredictable, being willing to fight, being willing to not rubber stamp the Speaker of the House pick gave these folks an opportunity 
to change the rules. It almost doesn't matter how they change the rules in favor of more transparency and, and better spending and rules that will force a budget and a balanced budget in 10 years and all kinds of things. It doesn't, it may not even, what you need to know is it may not even matter what the substance was. What matters is people see that you can succeed. And maybe the lesson of the 223 member Republican majority is that you can actually win if you stick together and are clever and are smart. And then importantly, know when to take yes, know when to take yes for an answer. Is a great line that uh, Chip, uh, uh, Chip Roy, I think, initially used. Um, Chip Roy, uh, the congressman from Texas, and then um, his old boss, he used to work for him, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, said the same thing. So um, it was very exciting. And what you need to know is, I think it's a new day. It's a new day in terms of the energy for fighting and being willing to stand up. And, and here's the, um, the, the last piece of this that was so important. I said last week that Speaker McCarthy was the first digital speaker and what I was meaning by that phrase is hopefully was catchy, but was he was a, a, the speaker who was elected in the era of social media. And in the era of social media, everything you do is seen. And in the area of C, in the era of C-SPAN on the floor of the U.S. House without limits, you could see every word, everything that was said, and you had a sense of what was happening. And so it's uh, it was a great day, a great opportunity a great thing. And what you need to know is our country is better for it. A lot better. Really exciting. Really exciting. All right. When we come back, we've got a lot more and uh, we will be uh, back. We've got uh, two, two guests today and we'll get that Thomas Baker interview coming up tomorrow. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. It's been a while. I haven't talked to Phil Kirpin in quite a while, I'd say. I was uh, thinking about this, Phil, when I was getting ready for this. He's the president of American Commitment. He is uh, a prolific writer. I, I, I flagged an op-ed that he wrote, because as my listeners know, even though our show originates out in San Diego, uh, it also plays over in St. Louis and Missouri, where I come from. And uh, he was writing about uh, Missouri and how some of these states have stepped up, uh, in this case, Oklahoma and Missouri, to stop uh, Joe Biden's the student loan bailout. Uh, So first of all, welcome back, Phil. How are you? I'm good. Great to be with you. Actually, I never was able to get Oklahoma to file, so we're counting on Missouri. Okay, Uh, they've got five other states on the lawsuit, but they're really the one that has the good argument for standing. So they're they're going to have to they're going to have to carry the day at the Supreme Court here coming up. Do you think, uh, Phil, that um, and this is a little inside baseball, but my listeners know that anytime it's Missouri, I will slide into this. Has the new attorney general uh, of Missouri put his uh, fingerprints on anything in a way that makes you either happy or sad or worried? I haven't seen anything. The uh, the the lawyer whose name is on the briefs and who did the oral argument in the lower courts was Michael Talent, yeah, who yeah. I guess is Jim Talent's son. Yeah. And so it's not something where, you know, the AG himself is yeah. uh, arguing it or seems to have changed anything as far as I've seen. Yeah, well, I think I, I would and I would think that they've been pretty good about, you know, it was a Republican. Eric Schmidt moved up to the U.S. Senate and then, you know, you're not going to put a liberal on. But you just you just never know. Sometimes somebody gets in office and they think it's time for me to have a few deep thoughts. And in this case, but 
but so um, tell me, um, Phil, in, you know, in talking about this issue, most people, conservatives thought it, you can't do that. I mean, the president can't do this fake forgiveness alones. But th- this guy, this president and this government, they do these things all the time. And I think they know a certain segment is going to think it's popular, whether it's constitutional or not, whether it's successful or not. Is that am I reading that right? Is that how, how you see it? Well, no question. I think this was a uh, political move. And uh, the president, I think the political calculation was something along the lines of, hey, we might get away with it. And if we get away with it, 40 million people are going to be grateful to us for the free ten to $20,000. And if we don't get away with it, we'll blame the judges and we'll blame the Republicans and we'll blame whoever stopped us. But, uh, you know, we'll still get political benefit from it. And I, I think in particular, They really wanted to juice up um, engagement and enthusiasm and turnout among younger voters or the people who are more likely to have these student loans or they're going to be eligible for this giveaway. And they really went to pretty extraordinary lengths to make it look like this was something that was definitely happening. In fact, they sent out nine million emails that said your loan forgiveness has been approved. And then after the election, they said, oh, that was a mistake. We shouldn't have done that because, of <laughs> right, course, right. you know, they've been blocked by courts. And so they've not issued any loan forgiveness to anyone under this. Right. Um, so I, I don't think it's too cynical to say that this was a you know, political vote buying move. And uh, you know, I think that they ultimately probably didn't care too much whether they got away with it or not, uh, because the objective was to get people you know, pumped up for that election. Uh, again, we're talking with uh, Phil Kirpin, and if you go over to uh, AmericanCommitment.org, you can see uh, a lot of the different uh, issues that they're taking up um, and uh, what is happening. Phil, um, do you think, how do you feel about the, uh, the the fall election yielding one house? I know you have a great familiarity with the U.S. House and who's there and how they do it. Are you? Do you think this is a chance to contrast governing styles? Do you think there's, uh, I thought the last five days or six days was phenomenal. I, I think, I think Kevin Kevin McCarthy came out looking like a star. Uh, he didn't lose his cool. I mean, I don't, I'm putting aside his politics. I, I have some complaints, long, long-standing complaints. He looked like he was cool. Uh, you know, these other guys looked like they were fighting for good things. C-SPAN got in and could read people's lips. I thought it was great. Yeah, look, I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy is a very astute political operator. I don't think he has really strong policy convictions. And that's why I think as conservatives, we're a little bit wary of him. Um, You know, that said, the way this all worked out, conservatives have set up a, uh, you know, a number of commitments from him that are really encouraging and uh, really positive. And they've got the ability to enforce those commitments because they can take the gavel away from him if he if he doesn't live up to what he's promised. And so I think that um, what conservatives did was very, very powerful and uh, it gives us an opportunity to draw a really clear contrast for the American people on fiscal issues and spending in particular, uh, you know, this year and doing the budget process the correct and legitimate way instead of a train wreck at the end of the year. And, you know, we'll see if the Senate plays along or if they uh, are intransigent, uh, but at least we'll know who's responsible if it's the latter. And I think that I agree with you. I think McCarthy handled it pretty well, which showed, you know, kind of his skills as a political operator. And, you know, somebody who's a skilled political operator, if they're constrained to direct those talents in a conservative direction by their, you know, by their conference, as he now is, that could be a good thing, not a bad thing to have his skills. 
Well, and as I tell people all the time, if you're waiting around in Washington or pick your state capital to get some, get everybody pure of heart before you get what you think you want, you're going to be waiting a long time, right? I mean, I, I don't mind why you vote right or why you let these votes happen on the floor, uh, Speaker McCarthy. If you're, as you say, if you're constrained by what you see as a political reality, hey, that, that and that's part of what 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 I think uh, works here. Uh, we're talking again uh, uh, with uh, Phil Kirpin about uh, American commitment. He's ahead of American commitment. Um, do you? But but do you think now? Um, Phil, that the um, is there a is there a is there room in the majority in the House? It's a little bit of a strange question, but you're one one of the people I know would kind of get this for a uh, conservative movement. Is it the is it the Freedom Caucus? Is it the Republican Study Committee? Or is it you know under Pelosi there was no such thing. The, the, the progressives thought they were going to have a say. They had nothing. I mean, they had Pelosi was the dictator. She was in charge of everything. How, how do you think this plays out? And does does it mean that there is an ascendant uh, um, sort of uh, leader in this in this house that you see is it Chip Roy? Feels like Chip Roy played the game a little bit more than Matt Gates played, at least the way it looked. But I don't I don't know. Is that you see what I'm saying? Is there is there going to be a a sort of separate uh, a seat of power? Well, I think Chip definitely distinguished himself. Uh, he had specific objectives. He had it that that had to be met. And he wasn't going to move until he got them. And uh, he, I think, put on sort of a masterclass in how even with a relatively small number of people, you can use the leverage that the rules provide and that, you know, parliamentary procedures provide to uh, to get your way and to carry the day. And so I, I think people have been very impressed with him. And, of course, you know, now everyone's speculating, is he going to primary John Cornyn or not? Uh, because right. he's got sort of the profile maybe. Uh, to do that, of course, uh, he would tell you he's not even thinking about that. He's got a lot of work to do in the House where he is right now that he's focused on. Uh, so I would definitely score him as one of the big winners in this. But I think, you know, the one of the consequences of the concession that they demanded that there be floor, uh, an open floor process on appropriation bills, including amendments being offered by individual members. And we've had basically zero amendments offered on the floor that weren't pre-screened by the Rules Committee in something like the last, you know, eight years. And so it's been a long time since we've had anything like this. But, you know, one of the implications of that is we're going to have a lot more votes, including a lot more politically challenging votes that the Democrats put up to try to split and divide us. And, um, you know, at the end of these processes where we have lots and lots of amendment votes and lots of debate and deliberation, which is all wonderful, they're going to have to actually vote on the end products. And I think the big question, the big challenge is, you know, at the end of you know the open process and the open debates, will they be able to get a majority to actually pass bills and to stake out a position, you know, going into negotiations with the Senate and the president? And you know, I hope that, you know, that the Republicans will be pretty united in the fact that, you know, you let the you let the body work its will. And then at the end of it, you know, unless there's some huge principle that's breached or whatever, you actually pass the bills because otherwise we're going to get a much worse outcome. So but that's the big question mark to me. I don't necessarily know the answer to it, but that's the big question mark is, uh, you know, will they actually pass these appropriation bills after they have these amendment bills? Uh, we're talking again with Phil Kirpin, who heads up American Commitment. You know, uh, Phil, when I was looking again, I was thinking about this interview, um, and I and I don't know the answer. So, but I, as I ask you, you know, a good lawyer is not supposed to ask ask questions; doesn't know the answer to. But I'm not a good lawyer; I'm just a lawyer. But uh, Phil, um, you seem like the kind of guy, an American Commitment, the kind of organization that would have been um, shadow banned and limited. I mean, if I look at your issues page, AmericanCommitment.org, defend free speech, end regulatory tyranny, uh, protect property 
property rights. I mean, all the stuff that's sort of the constitutional protecting uh, efforts, you know, uh, defend the, the free market uh, uh, access to the Internet. Um, did you find and as the Twitter files have come out and as more is becoming clear, did, were you guys really targeted? Can you tell uh, or is it just systemically, you know, wide that anybody on the, I don't know, center right or uh, anyone to the right of the Constitution was targeted? And, and what do you think of the future where it's so clear that everybody uh, at Twitter, for example, was on the in the tank on the left? You know, I, I only, I never got suspended. I got locked out of my account once for like a weekend. And then they said that I was a target of a hack attempt or something and they locked it for my own protection. And maybe that was true. Maybe it was a lie. Who knows? Uh, but I'll tell you that there was a night and day difference in the kind of engagement that we got on Twitter when Musk took over. And uh, it kind of tells you that uh, there were general thumbs on the scale against pretty much all conservatives. So certainly all people who were skeptical of, you know, COVID lockdowns and school closures and vaccine mandates and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they had a, they took a side strongly uh, in those debates and they did it in more subtle ways in addition to the bans, because, you know, even uh, in a right. group like ours that was never banned, you definitely saw engagement substantially increase on those sorts of issues after there was a change in uh, in control. And so um, I think they had, I think that it's, it's been very corrosive uh, to sort of, the national dialogue and uh, you know, kind of all these issue fights uh, that you know, Twitter became the main place that a lot of this stuff played out because that's yeah. where all the journalists are all day. I mean, it's in, journalists are kind of lazy by nature, but they don't even call you anymore. They just right. grab yeah. tweets and put it in their stories. Yep, I yep. Mean, it's, uh, that's right. So it really does make a difference, you know, kind of the way that that plays out. And I think Elon Musk has done us sort of a massive favor by, you know, not just taking those thumbs off the scales, but giving access to reporters to say what happened. And these Twitter files, I think, have been pretty incredible, especially the extent to which the uh, intelligence apparatus was in bed with Twitter and uh, kind of directing a lot of this stuff. That's very third world. And so I I hope that this is something that the the House will really take up from an oversight standpoint. And uh, one of the bills that the um, House Republicans have talked about doing is this bill that Jim Jordan has to uh, prohibit any government employee from, uh, you know, directing or or working with a private entity to restrict First Amendment protected speech. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important that we hold the individual government employees who did this stuff accountable and prevent, you know, from going on in the future. And, you know, I kind of think that bill is a good starting point, but I looked at what the penalties are, Ed, and they're ridiculous. You know, it's like, or you can get fired, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So absolutely. they need to beef that up. Yeah, yeah. Dramatically. I want you criminal. Yeah, you lose your lunch money. You know, you won't yeah. be able. You won't be able to get the full tenure track position at the Columbia School of Journalism. You have to wait a year or something. Anyway, all right. Hey, uh, Phil Kirpin, as always, thank you for being out there uh, so energetically and uh, spending some time with us. Phil Kirpin, everybody, I will put up on social media, AmericanCommitment.org. You can find out more there. Thanks very much, Phil. All right, have a good one. Okay, we'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Uh, I will post that all up on social media. Be right back.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's been a while since we have our next guest on with us. Uh, Rick Mehta is a uh, former FDA official, worked at the uh, Food and Drug Administration, also uh, currently is over at Georgetown University as a health law professor, uh, ran for office, which is always valuable. I often tell people, Rick, that the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I work, she used to say the uh, one of the most important things she did was run for office and lose. If you run and win, you, you go serve and you think you're a genius. If you lose, you understand how the system works. The ups and downs, the pressures uh, on candidates and on elected officials. And so uh, Rick Mate has been on uh, as a commentator on Fox News uh, all over the place. And uh, he is himself from New Jersey. So we have a little bit of a story up there. So first of all, welcome back, sir. How are you? Hey, Ed, great to be back on. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you on now again. You, you know, I think we did this once before. You, you've been a in in business side, so private sector. You've been in uh, in the as a lawyer. You've seen the judiciary. You it worked on in the executive branch over at the FDA, and then you were a candidate for office. So you sort of seen all of the federal uh, government in different ways. But this story that I see and I wanted to ask you about is uh, Governor Murphy. He's got fifteen million dollars taxpayer dollars going to abortion. Uh, facilities now new jersey is blue it's a blue state liberal state is this an example uh rick that you know some states are going to become more liberal and others are going to become more conservative and you're sort of going to just sort by uh preference um or is this is this even further to the left than new jerseyans want yeah, I mean, I'll tell you right now, uh, Governor Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, is probably one of the most extremist when it comes to Democrat positions. He's positioned himself uh, to be an extremist and uh, really side with the more than progressive uh, caucus. And so after the Dobbs decision, which the U- U.S. Supreme Court said that there's no federal right to an abortion and they stopped reading that into the state of privacy, uh, a lot of that was pushed back to the states. And so what Governor Murphy did is he dealt down on that and looked at it as an opportunity. Uh, really, I mean, New Jersey is the Garden State. You might as well call it the Grim Reaper State. Uh, Governor Murphy took that as an opportunity to create New Jersey as a destination for abortion, creating abortion tourism, and creating a sanctuary state program for abortion. So, fifteen earmarking fifteen million in loans to upgrade facilities, uh, changing the licensure status to allow for non doctors to perform uh, abortions without the oversight of a physician. Uh, or, or someone trained in the practice uh, and continue to expand additional funding is really part of this more massive program to really set New Jersey uh, as the state uh, that wants to attract all uh, abortion uh, procedures. Uh, we're talking with uh, Rick Maida. Rick, um, you know, from your perspective, uh, is, you know, some of these things uh, happen because they're ideologues. Some happen because of ambition. Um, you know, Governor Murphy, does he think he's going to run for president someday? Is he that kind of guy? I know he comes out of the private sector with a, a boatload of money. He's not a, you know, he's a wealthy guy. So yeah, New Jersey's had this tradition of sort of uh, uh, big money guys come in. Uh, Corzine did, and he thought he was going to be a national player. Didn't work out that way. But is Murphy, is that what Murphy... Governor Murphy is positioning himself or is he is he an ideologue or are his people ideologues? I mean, this is pretty far to the left, even for New Jersey. Well, you know, I would think that uh, Governor Murphy seems like the kind of guy that's really appealing himself to this very progressive base. Uh, And really, there's no reason. He's in his second term, right? He could really take a a more moderate platform. And by the way, New Jersey is not as blue as one may think. We saw that in the governor's race 
uh, you know, Phil Murphy barely won his second term. I uh, lost by over about 100,000 votes, less, less than two points. Uh, and so, you know, you have about two million registered Democrats, about a million registered Republicans, but you still have about two million independents that really sway left and right. So arguably, New Jersey is still a purple state. Um, so really, at this point, it sounds like rather than setting a platform from Democrats to take over the, the governorship uh, in, in 2025, it almost feels like Governor Murphy is playing into his own playbook and possibly setting the stage for uh, for running for president. I could see that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, there's nothing like raising money and uh, raising your profile when you're running uh, when you're running a big state. You know, I used to say that before Andrew Cuomo got in trouble, the reason why, uh, uh, you know, people thought he was a national player. When you're governor of one of these states, there's a lot of businesses, a lot of entities that are paying attention to whatever you're asking. So, uh, Rick, you know, I want to ask you another question. As a candidate, um, you were a U.S. Senate candidate in 2020. Um, you know, you're you're widely uh, seen as a conservative uh, at Rick Meta, by the way, underscore NJ on Twitter. Um, and I'll put up uh, links to some of your uh, one of your appearances I see on Fox News. But what do you think about the big tech situation? Did you looking back on your campaign, on your uh, uh, efforts to try to get uh, your voice heard? You think you you think you were silenced? Do you I mean, obviously, we're getting lots and lots of news out of uh, out of Silicon Valley of, of how they've been treating uh, certain groups and how, frankly, rivals or uh, I don't know, enemies a little dramatic, but rivals of the ruling class uh, uh, were being targeted. What's your sense of your own uh, voice and what you saw in campaigns looking back now? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I was very outspoken when it came down to the COVID policies, uh, anti-lockdown and talking about more. I'm, I would call myself a common sense uh, conservative. And if you just look at it at, at the end of the day, I'm still a scientist. I'm a numbers guy. Uh, if you look at it statistically, I had over, I think, 18,000 followers. I would tweet something about COVID. And now working at the FDA, I understood that there was an entire government campaign to push an unapproved vaccine, uh, not really provide the right information to make informed consent for patients and physicians and then silencing the voice of those that had a dissenting or a different opinion than Fauci and the administration. And I would get maybe two or three tweets and, and a, I mean, two or three likes on my tweet and a couple of retweets. How is that even statistically possible? Uh, and it's not. And so, you know, when you look at that, I mean, of course, there was shadow banning, probably labeled as, you know, someone who believes in conspiracy theorists, theories or whatnot. Now, you know, I'm a law professor at Georgetown. I've built my entire career looking at science and the cross-section of science and law. In fact, I've ran a health administration when I was in D.C. I've worked across the aisle in bipartisan manner, you know, always aspiring. And I'm more of a conservative than I am, let's say, Republican or Democrat. And looking at that and, and understanding how these systems work and then doing what's best for the people in order for people to live, you know, looking at the intended and unintended consequences of the failed policies and then commenting on that. And you get silenced and shadow banned. So yes, of course, when I ran against Cory Booker, who, by the way, you know, protected a lot of these big tech. I mean, he was there with Lady Gaga and you name it, you know, celebrity after celebrity partying in Silicon Valley with all of the venture capitalists. Uh, and, you know, he's got the 
that they got him in his pocket, right? So, uh, you know, going up, up against him, it, it would be simple for him to make a couple phone calls, which I'm sure will never be disclosed and, right. and silenced. Yeah, you would never, you would never know. Yeah, you would never know. We're talking with Rick Mehta, and, and again, his perspective, as you said, about at the highest level. I mean, academia, Georgetown, uh, one of the biggest law schools in the country, working in the FDA and, and running for office. Um, a, a different sort of question. Our, my show, our show originates in San Diego on the Salem Radio Network. We also get a, a, a play out in um, uh, Missouri in St. Louis, where I'm from. Um, Missouri turned red. I mean, as it's a red state now. I mean, there was a you know 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd say, well, you know, you could maybe have a, a statewide elected official as a as a governor, maybe uh, attorney general. It's red now. New Jersey, like California, it feels really blue. I know you said it was it wasn't quite as uh, blue as you think, but can you envision? I mean, I know you tried hard and you got a lot of support and you built a lot of coalitions, but you know, for people in these states, is is your best hope, you know, get thee to Florida or get thee to uh, Texas in light of uh, what you think is in the next ten to twenty years? Uh, look, I, I'm I'm sinking my uh, I'm sinking my feet into New Jersey. I love Jersey. I mean, we got the best oceans. We arguably the best uh, landscape, and I love it here. I mean, you know, the, it's rather than looking at and being envious of Texas and Florida, I think we're looking for a common sense politicians to step up, candidates to come in and win. And look, you had that with Chris Christie. You know, whatever his flaws may be today, you know, Chris Christie then at that time really did a great job of you know rallying a lot a lot base and looking at common sense solutions, looking at what the people of New Jersey, the families needed. Uh, and he was able to win uh, despite a, a registration deficit. And like I said, with two million independents, New Jersey is up for grabs. What you need is an authentic leader. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, the more you know, Phil Murphy continues to go left and left and left. And, you know, again, his aspiration is to make New Jersey the California of the East. Uh, you know, the more he does that, the more people it affects them. High taxes, high regulations, even in urban areas where they pull a lot of their votes, even the black and brown community is getting sick and tired of these progressive policies. They feel like they're being used to push an agenda that doesn't even actually help them. And what are they looking for? They're looking for generational wealth. They're looking to break out of cycles of poverty. They're looking for good school systems, education, and people that care for them. And what are they getting in return? Uh, they're getting additional government funds. Nobody's you know caring about them. And they get high taxes, high regulations, inability to buy housing, uh, and allow for them to grow and uh, care for their families. And so they're sick of it. You know, they're sick of it. And I think as we get into 2025, it's going to be an interesting dynamic here in the state. Well, and then, of course, uh, uh, Virginia and, and New Jersey, among the other states, States, not too many that have uh, off-year elections, at least at the state um, uh, state house level, and so there'll be some uh, there'll be some opportunity to see uh, where some of the national heat is off. Um, if you can see people saying, "Hey, I just I'm sick of the the far left of the Biden administration and the Murphy administration and others." So, all right, Rick Mayta, we'll be watching and we'll have you back on again. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it very much, and I'll put up on social media and share some of the links to your good work. So, thank you, sir. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Take okay. care. Yep, thank you. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's uh, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The 2022 midterm election confirmed yet again that rampant ballot manipulation by Democrats will be used to overcome their deficit at the polls. 
Real Clear Politics, a premier forecaster of election results, predicted a 53 to 47 Republican majority in the U.S. Senate based on its careful analysis of all the polling and historical data. States that maintain some election integrity, such as New York, Ohio, Texas, and Florida, reported outcomes consistent with their polling. In Florida, the top vote-getter was the Trump-supporting Republican Attorney General Ashley Moody at 61%, who sided with Trump in challenging the 2020 election. But in states lacking election integrity, such as permitting dumps into drop boxes totaling hundreds of thousands of ballots that aren't verified in any meaningful way, the outcomes seem changed. These changes enabled Democrats to claim pivotal victories in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada. Drop box Dems is what these people might be called because they stuff the ballot box without monitoring. Unsupervised ballot boxes are now allowed in Arizona, where two state Senate Republicans joined with Democrats to defeat a bill there that would have established much-needed monitoring of ballot dumping. Two days after the fall election, the largest county in Arizona announced that it had not yet begun to count 290,000 ballots found in boxes on Election Day. Inadequate verification of these ballots added lopsided tallies in favor of Democrats who perpetuate open borders. In 2024, no Republican nominee will have a chance in states that allow so much voter shenanigans. A conservative presidential candidate can still prevail by winning Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, but election integrity needs to be restored there between now and the next election. The good news is that Republicans still control the majority of state houses, even in states that don't always appear conservative. The top issue of the next two years is whether these state legislatures will secure their election processes before the next presidential election. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Our mission, clearly stated at phyllisschlafly.com, is to enable and mobilize grassroots activism on behalf of cherished conservative values. You're encouraged today to go online and read the goals we support and those we oppose. Then join us. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and come back next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, um, finishing up today, let me give you a window, what you need to do, what you need to do today. Um, and that is you need, we need, all of us need uh, to go ahead and uh, thank the uh, the patriotic, the heroic 20 uh, that stood up um, for uh, fighting for good changes in the House. And here's what I want to tell you. Um, in this case, it's very important that you actually call, call and thank the 20 by name. Uh, we need to call and we need to um, to thank the 20. You need to go ahead and find out uh, their office phone number. It doesn't matter if they're where they're from, where you're from. Um, it needs it needs to happen that we um, call them up and say thank you for standing up for good things. Here's why. Um, the 20, I've been hearing from people, the 20 congressmen, the U.S. congressmen, U.S. House members, Republicans who stood up and were part of some portion of the fight to make sure the Speaker of the House was responsive to the grassroots, um, they were getting calls from donors. 
They were getting calls from poobahs. They were getting calls from big hitters. They were getting calls from lots of pressure sources saying, hey, don't do this. Um, what are you doing? Um, and why are you doing this? Now, what's funny about that is uh, Chip Roy, I mentioned Chip Roy came to speak at an event. Chip Roy said uh, these guys thought that that was going to work, that they would pressure us when sometimes we get a call and it'll be a big donor to the Republican Party, but not to that candidate. He's, you know, not to that elected official. And Chip Roy was saying, you know, there's nothing like having a big donor who says, I've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Republican National Committee and I want you to do, you know, consider this. And the, if you're an elected official, you're like, wait a second. I never got that money. I never got that help. I never got that, that support. It's kind of, uh, it, it shows the true colors. But the point was that, uh, Chip Roy said, what we really need to do is support these candidates, excuse me, these elected officials, these 20. I'm going to get you a list of the 20. Two, I can tell you right now, I could tell you about five or six. Well, let me tell you a few. Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Chip Roy of Texas, Dan Bishop of North Carolina, Matt Gates of Florida, uh, uh, Bobert, uh, Lauren Bobert of, uh, of, uh, Colorado. Those are five good ones. Andy Biggs of Arizona, but there's 20. We're going to get the 20 and you need to uh, be supportive of the 20. You need to give the 20, uh, some attention. And we, meaning the grassroots need to make sure that they hear and feel, uh, the difference. And here's the trick. They need to feel encouraged and others like Speaker McCarthy and others need to know that we're supportive of them that we're encouraging of them, that we're out there uh, supporting what they're doing. So I want you to consider doing that in some way, uh, whether it's in an email, make a phone call, make a contribution. Um, uh, what, you know, it, it's, it's most powerful uh, is to say a prayer for these folks, each of them by name. Uh, make sure to ask for protection and encouragement. That's the biggest one you can do. I know people think, oh, well, you know, this, that, that. that's the starting point. And I'll get those 20. We're going to have those 20. For the next two years, those 20 deserve a special place in our hearts, in our minds, in our action. That's what you need to do. All right, let me say, speaking of action, thank you to the great Noah Dingley, our producer who puts this together, Ryan Hyde, our associate producer, and you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.